Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so this is session two of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Last week I spent a lot of time dealing with historical issues as to why we hold to the 1689, why, why it's been a document that's been around for over 330 years. And the very first chapter is on the scriptures. And so we did not get through everything that we needed to get through on the scriptures because there's a lot of chapters. And so the way that the um, 1689 is set up is it's by chapters. And so let's just do a little bit of review from last week. So chapter one talks about the necessity of scripture, that scripture is necessary. God had scripture written down for all time. Then chapter two deals with the listing of the actual 66 books of the Bible. No less, no more. These are the 66 books of inspired scripture. And then we also talked about how the Bible is supernatural. It is God breathed. It's the only thing on earth that is breathed out by God. It's, it's inspired. We also talked about how the Bible is, we use the word inerrant or inerrancy. It's without errors, um, meaning that it's without errors. And then infallibility means the Bible cannot err. Um, we also talked about how the Bible is the ultimate authority. It has a fixed historical meaning that doesn't change over time. And that the Holy Spirit helps us understand the scripture. So we got through basically paragraphs one through five. So we're going to look at paragraphs 6 through 10 tonight. But before we get to the actual confession, I would like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Because Galatians is one of the early books that Paul wrote. And Paul's tone to the Galatian Christians in this letter is pretty sharp. And he needed to be sharp in his tone. And you'll find out here why because of what was on the line. So in Galatians chapter 1, let's just read verses 6 through 9. Normally in Paul's writings, he starts out and says, I give thanks to the Lord for this, or I praise God for this, or I give, I give thanks. But in this letter, he just launches right in and says, okay, there, there's a problem and I'm going to address it pretty quickly. So let's, let's read verses 6 through 9. Paul writes, I'm astonished. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let it be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, we see two things in this passage of Scripture. First, we see the perversion of believing in a different gospel. And Paul uses the term there, the ESV says, quickly deserting, like a deserter in war. You're, you're, you're changing allegiances. You're, you're turning away from the true gospel to a different gospel, a totally different gospel. And he says it's not just a, 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 a um, spin-off of the gospel. It's not just a watered-down gospel. He says it's not any gospel at all, as if there is another one. 
So they're turning to a different gospel, and these people are troubling them. They're distorting the gospel. That word distort means to pervert, to twist, to reverse. So these men, they were called the Judaizers back then. They were coming and saying to the Galatians that you had to be circumcised in order to truly be a Christian. Yes, you can trust Christ for salvation by grace alone, but you also have to add circumcision to the mix in order to truly be saved. And Paul's like, no, that's a false gospel. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so basically they are coming and they're distorting the gospel. In other places, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven four, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul says, listen, these guys are coming in and they're distorting, they're perverting, they're twisting the gospel, and you're in the process of abandoning this gospel. You're, you're, you're perverting the gospel, you're in grave danger. And then Paul goes on to give it even stronger thing. So there's the perversion of the gospel, but the second thing is we see the penalty of preaching a different gospel. Notice what he says there. He says there in verse 8, but even if we, including himself, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary or against the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul like brings up a hypothetical. Let's say an angel walks into church on a Sunday morning and stands in the pulpit all bright and shiny and I mean, it's an angelic being, a supernatural being, and he begins to preach a different gospel. What are you supposed to do with that? Now, it's interesting because Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So sometimes Satan doesn't come all you know, pitchfork and, and, you know, horns looking all evil. Sometimes Satan is subtle and makes it look almost as if it's true. Now, what are you supposed to do? Or what does Paul say? Even he includes himself. If you preach a false gospel, let him be accursed. Now, the Greek term there is anathema. I don't know if you ever know what the word, like to anathematize somebody, anathema, that's kind of a, an old word where, where somebody was kicked out of the church or, or deemed a heretic. It really means to deliver someone over to God's wrath and final judgment in hell. Um, it was used in the Old Testament to have something totally devoted to destruction. So Paul says if somebody comes with a different gospel, they are to be condemned. Now, does Paul say, well, you kind of should just put up with these people, let them in, it's okay? Learn to get along. It's not that big of a deal. What does Paul say? No, in certain terms, he's very strong. He says, no, let, even, if, even if it's me, let that person be condemned. And the reason I bring this up is, is because when it comes to the scriptures, we have to be very careful that we have the scriptures as our absolute standard of authority. Would you guys agree that there are a lot of quote-unquote, different or false or twisted gospels going around our world right now. I mean, with the proliferation of YouTube and TikTok and 
Instagram and Facebook and all the different social media platforms there are, they're, they're, false teaching has always been around, but I think it's more pervasive now because of social media. So when they wrote the 1689, over 300 years ago, there was no social media, but there was still false doctrine. And so even Paul, in his day, there's false doctrine. So when we talk about the importance of Scripture, holding fast to the Scripture prevents us from falling into false doctrine. So we're getting into the paragraphs that are going to deal with some issues that were historical at the time. Um, and so paragraph 6, and so again, if we're going to use a confession, we might as well get it out and read it. So paragraph 6 deals with the sufficiency of Scripture. So let's read the sufficiency. By the way, before we read that, what does the word sufficient mean? Enough. Enough. It's all we need. There's nothing extra we need. Okay, so let's look at, right, so we're on page 12, the bottom, <clears throat> like one point, you know, one six, par chapter one, paragraph six. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. And here's the point. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations that are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom, following the general rules of the word, which must always be observed. Okay, not going to deal so much with that last section, but I do want to focus in on the very last sentence on the bottom of page 12. Nothing is ever to be added to scriptures, and there's two categories here, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human tradition. Okay, so we're going to talk about those two issues here in just a moment. So basically what this statement's affirming is the absolute sufficiency of Scripture as the only source that we need. Nothing is to be added to it. Nothing is to be subtracted to it. It's the whole counsel of God's word, as Paul would say in Acts 20, 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. What's the whole counsel of God's word? Do you get to pick and choose what parts you like or what parts you're going to hold to? No, it's the entire scriptures. Now, we looked at this passage last week when we talked about the inspiration of scripture or the God-breathed nature of scripture. But I also want to continue in looking at the sufficiency of scripture. So let's again turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy. This is the go-to passage when we're talking about the scripture itself. 2 Timothy 3. Uh, let's start actually in verse 14. So Paul is writing to Timothy, his young protege. And if you remember, Timothy's grandmother and mother taught him the scriptures when he was young, and he became a Christian through his mother and grandmother. Timothy's father was, was a Gentile, was not a believer. His mother and grandmother were Jewish, and they taught him the Old Testament scriptures. So let's start in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you... Talking to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and that firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it. 
Okay, He learned it from his mother and grandmother and from Paul himself. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. We talked about that last week. Only scripture is God breathed. But I want to keep reading and let's focus on the second part here. All scriptures is breathed out by God and profitable okay, for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture is not only breathed out by God, but it's also profitable. That word means useful or advantageous or beneficial or valuable. And so four ways scripture is profitable. Paul lists those. What are they profitable for? Four, well, number one, teaching. Teaching. This just involves the content of Christian theology. What we need to know. Christian doctrine. The, the, the actual material or the truths that the Bible teaches. Reproof. Reproof really believe, is the idea that the Bible confronts false teaching and exposes heresy. It also rebu rebukes our conduct as well as our beliefs. So the Bible points out our sins and leads us to understand the truth. So reproof is more, hey, I'm getting in your face and telling you what's wrong or what sin is or what idols you have. Or, or, or. So it's, it's positively teaching its doctrine, but it's also rebuking and showing us what's wrong. And then correction very similar to rebuking, but correction um, is more positive. It guides us back to what is true. It corrects our behavior. Rebuking is more negative. Hey, here's what you're not supposed to do. Correction is here's what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And then training in righteousness, the fourth thing there, uh, that word describes how a parent would train up a child. And so the scriptures discipline or train us to believe correct doctrine and to live holy lives. So the Bible is profitable. And so when, when, when the scriptures are read, are preached, are taught, are meditated upon, or learned, what is it supposed to present in you? Verse 17. Now the man of God there is talking about Timothy as the pastor, but it, it applies to all of us, that we may be what? Complete. Complete. Equipped for every good work. So the scripture is profitable. It's God-breathed and it makes us equipped and complete. Therefore, we should not add to the scriptures, we should not subtract from the scriptures, and the scriptures are all that we need for life and godliness. There's no other source of absolute truth to teach us about God, sin, salvation, and all the things that the Bible asserts about itself. And again, how does, the, how does the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, how, what does it say about itself? Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I warn you, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. Okay? Now, the confession addresses two historical issues that were happening in the 1600s that are also somewhat happening today. So I want you to go back and look at that bottom paragraph. 
Paragraph six, that last sentence on page 12. Nothing is ever to be added to scriptures either. Okay, here's the two things. Either by, number one, new revelation of the spirit, or number two, by human tradition. So this paragraph addresses two issues that have historically been challenges to the sufficiency of scripture. So what's the first challenge? The first challenge is, I'm going to go in second order of how it's worded there. The first, the first challenge is adding the traditions of men as having equal authority to the written, description, written scriptures, the authority of men. Now, what were they addressing at that time? What were the traditions of men that were circulating around that time that were having the same authority as the Bible? You guys remember the counter-reformation during that time was the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, the Reformation said, sola scriptura, scripture alone is the only authority. The Council of Trent came along and said, no, that's not true. There's equal authority of the scripture along with human tradition. So the Roman Catholic Church has the councils, has the Pope making these declarations. And there's such a thing, have you guys ever heard of papal infallibility? That means the Pope, what some things that the Pope says they would elevate as on par with the Bible. The human tradition's on par with the Bible. Now, let me just give you what, let me give you their own words, so I'm not making this up, okay? So, the most recent teaching of Rome. So, this is their official teaching, the 1995 Catechism of the Catholic Church, okay? So, this is like their systematic theology. This is their official teaching. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It rejects the sufficiency of Scripture. This is what it says. Quote, the church, and that's the Roman Catholic Church, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's what their teaching is right now. It's not Scripture alone. It's scripture and human traditions are both equally authoritative. Now, what's the confession stating? You can't add anything to the scriptures, i.e. human traditions. So what they're addressing is the Roman Catholic Church in the <clears throat> 1600s, saying to the Roman Catholic Church and to, other, to any other group that would say, it's just the scripture alone, you can't add human tradition onto that whatever a pope says, whatever a council says. So that was the first historical issue in the counter-reformation, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the second, the second issue, historically, is the Anabaptists, or what they were called the radical reformers. These were not the Protestant reformers, but it was more of an offshoot. These were the groups saying that you could receive new revelations from the Holy Spirit in addition to the written word of God. So it's the kind of the idea, like today it would be, I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to have a confession of faith. It's me, God, and the Bible. I can go out to the woods and just kind of figure things out. I don't need a teacher. I don't need elders. Um, I can just kind of like wait for this inner prompting to lead me to understand things. And they were so radical back then that they would actually say that um, 
the Holy Spirit's impressions in your heart and these new prophetic revelations were even more important than the written word of God. So, so we really don't want to preach the Bible. We need to sit in a room and wait for the Holy Spirit to kind of give us new revelation. Um, have you ever heard somebody say, I've got a new word from the Lord, and they stand up and they, they say something that's not necessarily scriptural, but they're saying they got it from the Lord? Um, how was Mormonism founded? You guys remember? Think about Joseph Smith. 1820, he was out in the woods in New York when he received his first vision. God the Father showed up in the flesh, which is kind of a problem there, along with Jesus, both of them. And basically the Father and Jesus told Joseph Smith that all the other denominations were heretical and he needed to start his own group, form his own church. And so he did that. And it wasn't just automatic. You know, a lot of iterations came through. You have the Book of Mormon. You have a lot of their, their documents. But basically, Mormons believe in a plurality of gods. They believe that you populate your own planet when you die, if you're good enough to get your own planet through good works. Um, here's the official teaching of the Latter-day Saint Church on their eighth article of faith. So I don't have this in your, I don't have this on the screen, but just listen. It says, we believe the Bible... To be the word of God, as far as it's translated correctly, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. So theirs is human tradition, i.e. Joseph Smith, and this new revelation that supposedly Joseph Smith received from the Holy Spirit. So you're going to kind of see popular books on these new revelations, that some, somehow God speaks outside of the scriptures. Um, you know, God, God gives me an audible message. Um, God gives me an angelic visitation. God gives me dreams and visions. God uh, does all these things. Now, I'm not saying God cannot do those. God can. But what we really need to make sure is that this, the scriptures, everything's filtered through this. So you have a lot of like crazy televangelists and weird, weird type of stuff where they come up with all this weird stuff that has nothing to do with what the Bible says, but supposedly because they received a word from the Lord, you have to believe them because you, know, you don't want to doubt that somebody received something from the Holy Spirit. And so back then, even during the time when the 1689 was being written, as well as the Westminster, and just in that period of time, you had the radical reformers, the Anabaptists, who were basically um, getting these prophetic utterances and just basically saying, let's throw the Bible. It was like two extremes. The Catholic Church was like, we've got the Bible, but we got the Roman Catholic Church on par. The other extreme was, we got the Bible, but we don't, really don't need the Bible. We've got the Holy Spirit. Now, question. Let's just think logically here tonight. Did the Holy Spirit inspire the scriptures? Yes. Yes. Did the Holy Spirit have the scriptures written down? Yes. Okay. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you, is he going to direct you to have different theology or different practices from what the scripture says? No. Okay. So anytime somebody stands up and says, I have a word from the Lord or God spoke to me, or it's something kind of wacky and, and it like... They said God told them this, but that's in direct violation of Scripture. You have to just say, now, wait a minute. 
the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to do anything in violation with what the written word says. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let me just give you some voices from history. You guys know John Newton? Oh, let me just, I, I, for, I guess I, I forgot a blank here. Or, uh, privatized, individual, isolated approach to Scripture where you cut yourself off from church history, the creeds and confessions, and the authority of a local church can produce some unhealthy beliefs at best and outright heresy at worst. If you, if you, you kind of cut yourself off from a church family, qualified teachers to teach you, um, historical Christianity, and it's just kind of like you and your Bible. I'm a, a lot of times you may come up with weird stuff at best, or it could be outright heresy at worst. So, voices from history. Pastor and hymn writer, John Newton. You guys know what John Newton wrote? Amazing Grace. The guy that wrote Amazing Grace said this, The Holy Spirit does influence the hearts of all the children of God. They are inspired, and here's what he said, not with new revelation, but with grace and wisdom to understand, apply, and feed upon the great things already revealed in the scriptures. So I don't have a problem with somebody saying, hey, God has given me an insight into this passage of scripture. And then you kind of explain that scripture more deeply. That's the Holy Spirit giving you insight into a passage that's already written. What we would have a problem with is saying, I got a word from the Lord in addition to what the scripture says, and you kind of riff on something that's, that's not biblical. Um, J.I. Packer says this, the true way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which he guides us. The fundamental guidance that God gives to shape our lives is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word, but of the pressure on our consciences of the portrayal of God's character and the will of God which the Spirit enlightens us to understand and apply to ourselves. So I just think we need to be careful in this area. Um, just careful. I think you need to be very careful to avoid the terminology, God spoke to me or God told me. Just because it's kind of confusing. Did God speak to you audibly? If God spoke to you, does that mean that you need to write it down and it becomes Scripture? What if God spoke to you and it doesn't come true? Are you considered now a false? I mean, a better way of maybe saying it would be, instead of God told me or God spoke to me, maybe a better way would saying, through times of prayer and seeking the counsel of others, I believe God is leading me in this direction. Now, what we're kind of, it's semantics, but when you say God told me, how did he tell you? How do you know it was God? Okay. Now, here's the second thing that we need to be careful with. There's no objective way to determine whether these inner promptings or your thoughts are truly from the Holy Spirit. Inner promptings are not infallible and authoritative. What's the only thing that's infallible and authoritative? The Word of God. Okay. And then third, and I talked about this before, the Holy Spirit will never prompt or lead you to do something that clearly violates the written word of Scripture. All right, so let me give you a couple more quotes. from, or This is from a guy named Alan Chapel. Um, he wrote this, Are we meant to listen for the voice of God as the mystics teach? Yes, we are, but not in the way they mean. We hear him speaking not in spirit-given whispers, but in the spirit-given Scriptures. 
What he gives us is not new revelation, but fresh illumination. Not additional words from God, but greater insight into the word God has already spoken. Okay, so let me just make a distinction here between um, revelation and illumination. Okay? What we would say, and what the confession would say, is that God gives no new revelations in the sense that if God gives new revelations and these things need to be written down and these things should be scripture and these are, these are brand new um, truths that are added on to the Bible. So, so we need to be careful. But God can give illumination. Illumination is a greater understanding of the already written word where the Holy Spirit works in your hearts and minds to give you that understanding. And I got a scripture there for you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So John 16, 13 through 14 says this. When the spirit of truth comes, what's he going to do? He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will be, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so, so this passage of scripture. Two things the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to guide you into all truth, and he's going to glorify Jesus. So that's a filter. Anytime somebody stands up and says something, you've got to ask the question. If they say it's from the Holy Spirit, you've got to ask two questions. Is this person speaking the truth of the scriptures, and is what that person's saying glorifying Jesus? And if you say no to those two things, then you need to be very careful to, to, to make sure that that person is not just spouting off because what the confession is saying and I think what the Bible is teaching is that the scripture alone is sufficient to give us everything we need. We don't need human tradition, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church and the papal infallibility, and we don't need new revelations from people standing up and saying things that are in direct contradiction to the word of God just because they have an inner prompting or they said God told them. So that, that's kind of what the confession is talking about there. Okay. Any, any questions on that? Now, what this means, and I said I was going to address that, this this week. We're going to kind of get into the little bit of, not the weeds, but I think it's important. Some of the stuff I teach in my New Testament class at CCU when we talk about the New Testament canon. Okay, so here's, this is not necessarily... It'll be a little in other paragraphs, but, but the sufficiency of Scripture means we have a closed canon. Have you guys ever heard the term closed canon? I'm going to speak to you what, what a closed canon means. Canon's not a big gun you shoot off like in the... For canon, that's... So here's the question. Maybe you've asked this question before. Who determined which books should be included in your Bible... And why are they in the order that they're in? Have you ever thought about that? Why are there 66 books and not 67? And why did, why did some books make the cut and others not? Okay, the word canon comes from the Greek word canon, which originally meant a measuring rod, later came to mean a rule or a norm. So when we say a closed canon, what we're saying is this is the set, closed, fixed, completed set of books 
that are accepted as scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books. In other words, it's closed and then you can't like, it's not like one day we're going to add 3 Thessalonians or 2 John MacArthur. I mean, some some type of book's not going to be added down the road. Okay? The Book of Mormon added. Or Roman Catholic traditions added. And and I want to make sure that we understand this because a lot of people will say, well... At the, at the Council of Nicaea, a bunch of men gathered and they conferred authority on the scriptures and they're the ones that kind of said, hey, here's the list. That's not what happened. The canon is not an authorized collection of writings that the church conferred upon the scriptures to somehow authenticate, endorse, or authorize them as scriptures. That's not what happened. Here's, what's, here's, here's instead what happened. The canon is a collection of already inspired writings with their own inherent authority. So what canonization does is it recognizes and categorizes already inspired authoritative inerrant scriptures, not bestowing authority on it from an outside source like a church council. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. What, what we're saying is, well, I'll talk about it in just a moment. It, it should make sense. So, Let's talk about the Old Testament accepted books. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. 39 books in the Old Testament. Written between 1400 and 430 BC. So over about a thousand year period of being written. So by the time of Jesus' day, almost all the Jewish people agreed upon the the Old Testament, and it's the same Old Testament we have. Different order. They called it the Tanakh. The writings, the law, the prophet, the writings, they have a little bit different order, but it's the same number of 39 books. Okay? Now, Jesus himself affirmed the canon of Scripture of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus affirmed the complete Old Testament as Scripture. In Luke 24, 44, then he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses... The prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, those three terms, law, prophets, and Psalms, that's the Tanakh, okay? The law, the first five books of the Bible. The the prophets, that's more of the um, prophetic literature. And then Psalms, it can also be called the writings. That would be all the poetic literature. But anyway... The list that we have in our Old Testament, the way the Jewish people divide it up in three categories, but it's the same number of books that we have today are the same number of books that Jesus and Paul accepted as their scriptures. And so, argument closed for me, if Jesus accepted the Old Testament as a closed canon, we should as well. Okay. Now, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during Jesus' day, claimed that the Jewish canon or the Jewish list of books, which matches our Old Testament, had been settled from the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes around 465 to 423 BC. So he was saying at least 400 years before Christ was born that that list of books was the accepted books that the Jewish people accepted as scriptures. And then by the time Jesus came around, he accepted them. And so you know, we, we accept the same list of scriptures that Jesus did in the Old Testament. Now, New Testament. A little bit different. New Testament 
What issues must be considered to determine what books should be included in the New Testament? Okay, it's very interesting. The very first person to come up with a list of the full Bible, Old and New Testament, was a man named Marcion in 140 AD. And he was a heretic. He basically denied all the Old Testament. He denied the miracles. He considered Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and most of Paul inauthentic. And so he basically came up with a list and said, well, here's the list, but most of this isn't actually accurate. He was, he was deemed a heretic. His name's Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. 367, AD 367, was when Athanasius of the Athanasian Creed, he, 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 was a, he was a pastor, he was the first person to list the entire 66 books that we have today. And then the Council of Carthage in 397 agreed with it and said, this is, this is the, the selected list. So let's just say around, by the time 400 AD happened, is when the completed list of Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament was settled, the New Testament books were accepted. Now, why did it take so long for the New Testament books to be settled? And this is not in your notes, but I want you to think historically. What happened between 100 AD and 400 AD in the Roman Empire when Christianity was on the rise? What was going on during that time? Major persecution. The Christians didn't have time to sit around and to debate these issues. They were, they were being thrown to the gladiator. They had to fight for their lives. So it wasn't until about 313, the Edict of Milan, maybe 314, when Constantine made Christianity the legal religion in the Roman Empire, that now you had the freedom for these councils to meet, these Christians to meet, these people from all over the world to come together and say, let's start thinking about this. Because, all right, let's, let's look at the world at this time. I wish I had, a, sometimes I wish I had a map in here. So I'll do my best to draw the world at that time. Okay, so you've got, okay, this is Spain. You got Italy. There's the boot. You got Greece. Uh, you got Israel, and let's say this is Northern Africa. Okay, so this is Africa. This is Spain. This is Italy. This is Greece. This is what they would call Asia or, um, yeah, like a Asia where Ephesus and stuff. Uh, you got Israel area. Um, you got Egypt. So let's just kind of say this is the known world at the time. This is kind of the Roman Empire. So you got persecution going on all through this place. But do you have Christians meeting in Africa? Do you have Christians meeting in Egypt? Do you have Christians meeting in Israel? Do you have Christians meeting in Greece and Asia and Italy? Do you have Christians meeting in all these different places? Yes. Question is, what are they using as their scripture? Well, they were all using the same scriptures, and they all recognized the same scriptures. But it wasn't until after persecution that they could all finally come together at one meeting place and say, hey, what do you guys accept? What do you guys accept? What do you guys? And they all came in and said, oh, we're all accepting the same thing. 
So it wasn't like they came together and said, we're setting this list of what we think is going to happen. They were already accepting the scriptures in all these different geographic areas. They just had time to come together and talk about it after persecution. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Why did some books make it and some not? Because there are what are called the Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Judas. Gospel of Hermas, or Shepherd of Hermas. Some of these Gospels talk about how Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and had a child, and the Da Vinci Code is like from all that type of stuff. So let's give you the criteria. What were the criteria used to determine which books are in the Scriptures? New Testament. So number one is the most important, apostolic authority. Okay, Did an apostle write it? If not, can it be connected immediately to an apostle? For example, Mark was not an apostle, but he got his material from Peter. Luke was not an apostle, but he was an eyewitness that went and talked, or he, was on, he went and talked to eyewitnesses and was a historian. Okay? Matthew wrote Matthew. Luke, Mark, John wrote John. Now, was Paul an apostle? Yes, because Jesus appeared to him. Was James an apostle? Yes, he was the brother of Jesus. So you had Peter. So the New Testament books were written by an apostle, which means something. When did the last apostle die? Who was the last apostle to live? You guys know? John. John. When did he die? Around. Around A.D. 95-ish to maybe A.D. 100. Okay. So what's the last book written? Revelation. Revelation. Okay. So let's just ask a logical question. If any book comes after A.D. 100... Does it have apostolic authority? No. no, because it's not written by, they're dead. Okay, so, so anything written after 95 or 100 AD, you automatically have to say, this, is not, this does not have apostolic authority because it's not written by an eyewitness. Okay, so that's, that's the most important, apostolic authority. Okay, number two, antiquity. How far back can it be traced? This is the, basically the question we just asked. If it goes beyond the first century, it's not old enough. Revelation was the last book written around AD 95. Some of these gospels or some of these books were written like in the 200s. 150, 212 or whatever. Okay, so did it have apostolic authority? And by extension, it had to be written within, you know, can't be written after around AD 100 when John died. Orthodoxy. Is there anything in the book that causes concern? Is there any doctrinal deviation or teachings that would be not harmonious with other New Testament books and Old Testament? So is there some weird stuff in it that just doesn't jive with the rest of the other scriptures? Because we're going to talk about this. Can scripture contradict scripture? No. Is there an internal consistency? Yes. So every book that's accepted has to be internally consistent with the other books. So if there's something weird, it has to be rejected. Like Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene and having to, I mean, just weird stuff like that. Okay, this is why I drew the map. Universality. Did a broad geographical segment of the church accept it as scripture? Let's just say it was only accepted in Egypt. This is the only group that accepted it. But the people up in Israel and Greece and Asia and Italy and Spain and, and other parts of Africa said, we don't view that as scripture. But this one little group does. What would you have to say? 
it's not widely accepted. There's not a universal acceptation of that as being scripture. It has to be something that the entire world of Christians are accepting. Okay, and then traditional use. Had many of the churches or church fathers used it since AD 95 and for the next 100, 200 years. So when you look at the sermons, when you look at the writings, when you look at the churches, are they quoting this as scripture? Are they preaching on it? Are they teaching on it? And then inspiration. Is it God-breathed? So let's talk about, in summary, the canon. The teachings of the apostles are empirically reliable because they were eyewitnesses. They were there, written by an eyewitness. The different books of the New Testament are logically non-contradictory. They can't contradict each other. Because God's not a God of confusion. He's not going to have books that are going to contradict one another. Okay? New Testament documents were viewed as authoritative and were circulating among the churches by AD 90 or 100. Okay? So simply stated, here was the process. The New Testament books were written during the period of AD 45 to around 100. Most scholars would probably say James was probably the first book written. Maybe Galatians. Okay. They were collected and read in the churches from about 8100 to 200. So 100 years, those books were, they were circulated, they were written, they got finished writing in 100 AD with Revelation. Then they were compiled and they started circulating. And then by the time persecution ended, there was time for them to be carefully examined and compared with suspicious writings like the Gnostic Gospels that came around like in the 200s and 300s. And then there was complete agreement around 480. So it took about 200, 300 years. And again, God sovereign over that process, but a lot of it had to do with persecution and getting the gospel out. Until persecution settled down, they really didn't have the time to gather together for these ecumenical, these councils to, to kind of confer with each other what they were believing because they were fighting for their lives. Okay? So that's paragraph six. We spent a long time on that, didn't we? All right, paragraph seven. The clarity of scriptures. You guys didn't know when you came to Wednesday night you're going to get this deep into the weeds here. So here we go. All right, so... Paragraph seven. This would be. This is going to be an encouragement to you. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. In other words, you can know the scriptures. They're clear. So let's go to the book of Romans. And let's unpack what the clarity of scripture means. So Romans 10, 8 through 13. And what Paul's going to do here, Paul's going to quote three Old Testament passages. So it's very interesting. Even in the New Testament writing of Paul, 
he's going to quote the Old Testament to support what he's saying in his teaching. So again, there's an internal consistency between Old and New Testament. So he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's going to quote from Isaiah 28. And he's going to quote from Joel 2, 32. In Romans 10, 8 to 13. So he says this. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, what Paul's saying is everything you need to know for salvation is so clear in the Bible that a child can call upon Jesus to be saved. This, the confession calls it educated and uneducated. Don't, don't take offense at that, but basically what they were saying back in the day was a priest who had been studying Latin is not the only person that's going to understand the Bible. The Bible is written in such a way that a child could understand. You guys remember William Tyndale? He was, he, um, was a pre-reformer. He was during the time of Henry VIII, and um, the printing press came about with Martin Luther. And so he translated the New Testament into English. And that was against everything that was a protocol. So he had to actually go into hiding. So he went to Holland to go into hiding. And his friend betrayed him. And basically, he ended up being taken back, and he got burned at the stake. And basically, his last words were, you know, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And then, you know, two years later, they put the Bible in English. But what the famous thing that William Tyndale said was, he's like, I want the plow, the plowboy, the boy in the field that's plowing the fields, I want him to be able to read the Bible in his own language and know everything there is to know about salvation. Because back during that day, there was one Bible usually chained to the town square, and it was in Latin, or there was the Latin Mass. And so nothing was in English in England. And so the clarity of Scripture means that God has written his Bible in such a way that a child can understand what it means to be saved. So let's look at some of these scriptures. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay, now don't take offense at the words there. Making wise the simple. Psalm 119.130, the unfolding of your word gives life and parts understanding to the simple. Okay, so what it's saying here, again, it's kind of combating the Roman Catholic Church. Historically, you've got to think about these things. The confession rejects the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true interpreter of scriptures. Because back then, they would say, we're the only true interpreter. You've got to go to the Roman Catholic priest who's doing the Latin in mass for you to truly understand the Bible. You can't sit down with your Bible and read it in English and figure it out for yourself. That, that's impossible. You need us to interpret it. Okay? Now, but here's, here's the point of this paragraph. All scripture is God-breathed and infallible, but not all passages are equally clear. Would you agree? 
Have there come times when you're reading something in the Old Testament, you're like, I have no idea what this means. Then you go to the Psalms, you're like, oh, this makes total sense. Or you, or you go like to, you know, or you read a parable and you're like, I don't know what Jesus is saying here. And then you go to Paul and it's like, okay, that's, that's per- that makes perfect sense. So it's all inspired, but it's not all equally clear. And even Peter said this. Now this, I'm going to show you a fascinating scripture. So 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. I want to show you two insights from this passage of scripture, but read it carefully. This is what Peter says. Count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What's he say? He's talking about Paul's writings. Peter is talking about Paul's writings. So I want you to notice two things about that. Maybe you've never come across this passage of scripture before. Number one, Paul's writings are hard to understand in some places. Peter says, listen, even, even it's hard for me to understand what Paul's saying sometimes. So even Peter said, okay, there's some hard things to Paul. But I want you to notice what Peter equates Paul's letters to. Notice how that sentence ends. Peter accepted Paul's letters of Scripture. Paul, Peter didn't just say, hey, Paul's writing these letters. Peter acknowledged that the writings of Paul were already Scripture. Now, there are some unclear passages. However, what the confession is saying is the Bible is clear enough that a child can understand the basis of the gospel. Okay. So so but let me let me just address something here. All believers can understand the Bible. But God has gifted pastors and teachers to take the time to learn the original languages, study the text and faithfully help others understand the Bible more clearly. Now, has there come a time where you read a passage of scripture on your own and you came to church and you were in a growth group or you were in a sermon and you're like, I understand that a whole lot better now that somebody explained it to me. Okay. Now, as a pastor, I am paid by the church to study the scriptures, to be prepared to stand up on a Sunday morning to exp- like what I'm doing now. I have the time and the energy and the biblical knowledge and education and experience to be able to explain. And so, yes... You can read the Bible and understand it, but God has also given gifts to the church and pastors and teachers to help you understand it more. So we see this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He gave, this is Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the works of ministry for the building up of the church. Okay? My job is to equip you to understand the scriptures and to do ministry. So I take it very seriously that when you come to Emmanuel, I'm not going to stand up and wing it, but I'm going to do my best under the power of the Holy Spirit to faithfully explain the Bible to you the best I can. I don't always, always, always get it right. Don't always do a great job, but I take it seriously, so God has given pastors and teachers and and people, leaders in the church to be able to do that. Now, non-Christians can't understand the scriptures the way you can. And why? Who do you have in you that a non-believer doesn't have in them? 
the Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to 15. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, okay, the natural person is the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. It does not mean that a non-Christian can't track with you the facts of the gospel. What it does mean is that an unsaved person does not have the illumination or the power of the Spirit to help them understand the Word in such a way that they can grasp it, they can believe, they can repent, they can trust, they can follow. It's just kind of foolishness to them. Okay, but you, as a Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, have the Spirit of God in you, to lead you, to guide you, to teach you, to help you understand. And in addition to the Holy Spirit in you, he's given you pastors and teachers and leaders to also help you. But you have a responsibility. So I was talking with my friend, Pastor Dan, over at the Berean Church today during our pastor prayer time. And um, their church is called the Berean Church. And, and I was just kind of joking with Dan. I said, Dan, you know, a couple of us here are Baptists and people know what happens when they come to a Baptist church. When people visit your church, do you, do you like... They ask you, like, what's a Berean church? He's like, that's funny you ask, Sean, because um, sometimes we'll say on Sunday mornings, we're not a cult. You know, we're, we come from a verse in the Bible because, you know, some people understand Lutheran, Presbyterian, Nazarene, you know, Assembly of God, Baptist, but Berean's one of those words, like, not quite sure what that means. We got a verse for it. So um, this is where they get, our, our brothers and sisters over at the Berean church get it. It's from the Bible. So Acts 17, 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, okay, the town of Berea, the Bereans. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, these Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Okay, what did they do? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. So what did the Bereans do? They, they daily examined the scriptures. So you have a responsibility to examine the scriptures for yourself and to test everything through the word of God. Okay, so the scriptures are clear, not equally clear, but clear enough that you can understand everything you need for salvation You've got the Holy Spirit to help you, but you also need pastors and teachers to, to help you understand those maybe harder parts. All right, let's get to, to chapter 8. Not chapter 8, paragraph 8. This is a long one, but I think this one's important. And so I'm going to address another issue, another modern issue here. So here's paragraph 8. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the native language of the ancient people of God. And the New Testament was written in Greek which at that time it was written, was most widely known to the nations. These testaments were inspired directly by God. Again, there's the inspiration God breathed. And by his unique care and providence were kept pure down through the ages. They are therefore true and authoritative so that in all religious controversies, the church must make their ultimate appeal to them. All God's people have a right to and a claim on the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these original languages. 
So the scriptures are to be translated into the common language for every nation to which they come. In this way, the word of God may dwell richly in all, so that they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and the comfort of the scripture may have hope. Okay. God's kept his word pure throughout the ages. And because not everybody knows Greek and Hebrew, this paragraph is saying it needs to be translated into the language in which you speak so you can understand it. Okay, so that's the importance of Bible translations. Now, here's the question that we often get. Now, what do they say? The, the, what God had inspired in the original manuscripts of the Old and New Testament, what, is the, what does the confession say? Were kept pure down through the ages. So here's the question that I am often asked. How reliable is, we'll just deal with the New Testament. How reliable is the New Testament? Can we trust modern translations? Because have you ever heard this? Well, you know, there's been corruptions throughout the years. What we have today is not anything like there. How can you know, how can you know what you have today is, is the accurate thing that was written back then and there hasn't been changes over all these years? How do you know what you're reading in your ESV or your NIV or your New American Standard or your King James? How do you know that's accurate and hasn't been corrupted? Well, let me tell you the process, okay? And this is where it gets amazing. This is where God definitely did a, a work of sovereign uh, power through this. So we don't have any original manuscripts. So you can't find the original book of Romans. However, we have 5,752 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. So almost 6,000 copies. Now, let's compare that with some ancient writings around the same time and how many manuscripts we have of those. Okay? So let's, so, right, so let's write the number up here just so you guys have it visually in front of you. Can I round up to 6,000? Are you guys going to be upset or should I just say with 5,700? Okay, so we have 5,700 of New Testament. We'll give you 58. Okay. All right, let's, what about Homer? All right, so what's another thing? Like Homer's Iliad. The Iliad and the Odyssey. How many copies do you think we have of the Iliad? Which was kind of written around that, a little bit before that. We have 2,200. So less than half. Okay, what about the Odyssey? How many do you think we have of the Odyssey? I think it was 114. No, 141. 141 of the Odyssey. Okay. The Institutes, written by Gaius, written in the second century, three. The History of Rome was written by the, in the first century by Paterculus. We have one. The Jewish Wars by Josephus, we have 50. So when you compare all of the literature, ancient literature, from the original autographs, the original manuscripts, which collection of writings has the most existing ancient manuscripts? New Testament, by far. In addition, the oldest fragment, again, we don't have an original, the oldest fragment comes from around 125 AD. So this is about 20, 30 years after John died. It's called P52, 
or the John Ryland fragment, and it's John 18, 31 through 38. So what we start seeing here is manuscripts, not original manuscripts, but copies, showing up around 30 years after Revelation was written. Whereas in no other ancient manuscripts, these ones, Iliad, Odyssey, and others, they start showing up about three to 400 years later. And we don't have very many manuscripts compared to the New Testament. So people will argue, okay, I got, you got me there. We have more manuscripts. But the, the people that transcribed them, the scribes that copied them, they made mistakes. So what we have today are mistakes. So what we have today is not inspired. And so just because we don't have the original, like Paul's original letter to Romans, doesn't mean that we don't have the words of Paul. Was the papyrus, the papyrus, or the scroll inspired, or were the words? Not the material upon which it was written, but the actual words. Okay, so here's the point. When you have over 5,700 ancient documents from various geographical areas, translated into different languages, by the way, it's not just all Greek, but different languages, some, some in Latin, some in Syriac, what do you do? You lay them all out and you compare them. So, so what would you do if you had, if you had access to all 5,700 documents and you're, and you're in a room here, what are you going to do? You're going to lay them all out on the table. So you're going to take, let's just say the book of Mark. You're going to take Mark, you're going to lay all the Marks out. You're going to lay all the Lukes out. And what are you going to look for? Differences. We're going to look for differences. We're going to look for discrepancies. We're going to look for errors. We're going to look for all these things. So when you compare these ancient manuscripts side by side, guess what? there's about a 99% accuracy between them. Now, what's the 1%? The 1% is usually minor little changes like the, of, or maybe a misspelling of a name. Now, what would you think if you had 5,700 different documents? Do you think, what would you just naturally think? There's gotta be some errors. There's gotta be some changes. There's gotta be some differences. And then how, how, how long did it take for those, for those to be copied? Over two to 300 years. So here's the bottom line about the reliability of the Bible. The Bible was written by 40 authors over 1,000 years, and there is a consistent message, unified theology, no provable contradictions, and we have thousands of manuscript evidence. That cannot be said of any other ancient book. Quran or any other ancient book. To have that many authors, that many books, that much internal consistency. And so when the confession says God down through the ages prevented it from, what did he say, kept it pure down through the ages? God sovereignly worked to make sure that the Bible translations that we have today are, I would say, 99% accurate to the original manuscripts. Okay, so let's talk about Bible translations. There are different types of, of Bibles that you can use. So the first type of Bible translation would be a literal word for word. These translations take the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, translate each sentence into the best English equivalent, keeping the grammar, word choice, and syntax. So you, these are the ones you really want to deal with to get the most accurate 
to the original languages. So the examples of this would be the ESV, which is what we use here to manual, the New American Standard Bible, <coughs> King James Bible, New King James Bible, and the Christian Standard Bible. Those are the top, you know, the, I don't I can think of any other one I can think of. It's an actual word-for-word. -word. Uh, so the second type of translation is what we call a dynamic equivalent or thought-for-thought. -thought. So these translations take the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and try to make a smooth-flowing English sentence that communicates the overall thought of the original. Makes it more readable for modern audiences without changing a lot of the theology, but just kind of make it more f smooth flowing. So the examples, the two big examples of this would be the NIV, New International Version, and the New Living Translation. <coughs> now what you need to know about these first two categories is the formal equivalent, word for word, and the dynamic equivalent, thought for thought, they are done by large committees of translators and experts in the original languages from various denominational backgrounds to eliminate any theological bias. So like if you, are, if you were to go to the ESV website or go to the NIV website, you would see the translation committee. And you would see like these group of people worked on Mark and these group of people worked on Isaiah. It's not just one guy in a room. It's, 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 it's from different denominations too, so there's checks and balances. You know, you don't want to get like the Baptist or the Presbyterian, or the Lutheran, or the Assembly of God, or the Nazareth. I mean, you don't, you don't want to have a bias, so you, you've got checks and balances from various denominations. It's done by committee. Okay? Now, there's a third category called paraphrase. These are usually done by one person, <clears throat> like Eugene Peterson, the message. And it's usually that person's interpretation of the Bible that makes it easier to read for people that are unfamiliar with the Scriptures. Um, I would say if you do use a paraphrase, don't let it be your diet because it's one person's interpretation, opinion of how they view that scripture. So the one popular now is Eugene Peterson's The Message. I don't know if you guys have heard of The Message. Back in the 70s, it was like the Living Bible. I don't know if anybody ever uses a Living Bible anymore. Um, so what's the application in that last sentence? In that paragraph. Okay. What's the application of that last sentence for us? Two things. In paragraph um, eight. What does it say? Get my glasses here. Come on, Sean. Okay. In this way, um, oh, let's go back up to the middle. After you see that little footnote 15? Okay, look at that next sentence. All God's people have a right to and claim on scriptures and are commanded in fear of God to read and search them. So what should you do with the scriptures? You should diligently search the scriptures. Be like a Berean and read and search the scriptures. Take the time to read and search the scriptures in, your, in a translation that you can understand. John 5, 39 through 40, you, this, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You search the scriptures diligently, not to gain knowledge, but to, just for knowledge's sake, but to grow closer to Christ and realize that the entire scriptures are about 
Jesus. And then number two, that last sentence, in this way the word of God may dwell richly in all so that we may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scripture may have hope. So we want the word of God to dwell in you richly. And this comes through sitting under sound preaching, teaching, studying your Bible, meditating on your Bible, reading your Bible, memorizing your Bible. Let it, let it dwell richly. And that comes from Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with fullness in your hearts to God. Okay, I think we will finish. Let's move quickly here. Paragraph 9, the analogy of faith. And um, yeah, I've got one page left on that. So the analogy of faith. So um, let's read paragraph nine. And again, just think about how think about how um, robust and thoughtful and detailed they are on these issues that you would never think should be addressed. So let's look at paragraph nine. The infallible rule for interpreting scripture is the scripture itself. Therefore, when there's a question about the true and full meaning of any part of Scripture, and each passage has only one meaning, not many, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. Okay? What we're basically saying is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And that every passage has one meaning, not many. So, there is one definitive meaning of Scripture our goal in interpretation is to use the historical, grammatical, and theological method to discover what the original author meant. Now, I'm going to just briefly mention reader response versus authorial attempt. <coughs> reader response is a modern convention of how to interpret the Bible. And I'll give you an example of reader response. You're sitting in a Bible study, and you've got 15 people in a circle, and the leader goes around the circle and says, what do you think this passage means to you? What do you think this passage means to you? And everybody tells what they think that passage means to them. And it may be different. Okay? There may be 15 different meanings based upon what you subjectively feel. Reader response is basically saying, here's what I think the Bible means, or here's what I think it means, and here's what I, my, my interpretation of it. Okay. That's not the way to interpret the Bible. Authorial intent is... What was the author's original meaning to the original audience? What's the historical setting? What's the grammar? What's the structure? My job is to get to what did it mean to the original audience, not what does it mean to me? Because I wasn't alive then, and, it, and it, who cares what it means to me? It has a meaning that the original author had. So scripture interprets scripture. Now, principles for interpreting scripture. I could spend a whole class on how to teach you how to do this, but let me give you five principles. So this is kind of when you're doing Bible study, when you're searching the scriptures and you come across a scripture that's difficult, you go find other scriptures. So if you come across a difficult scripture, you basically say, you know what? I'm not sure what the scripture means because it's difficult, but I'm going to go find other scriptures that are clearer that may speak into how to, how to understand that scripture. Because again, it can't contradict. It's not equally clear. So how do you interpret? So, real briefly here, I'm going to give you five principles for interpreting Scripture. Number one, again, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Clear passages 
should be used to explain verses that are more confusing or difficult to understand. So for, let me give you an example. Let's go to Mark. Go to the end of Mark. We've got a little bit of time. Five minutes, ten minutes. Go to the end of Mark. I'll keep an eye on the time. <clears throat> now, a couple of things about Mark 2. <clears throat> if you look at... Is there, is there a big statement between verses 8 and 9 in Mark chapter 16? Mark chapter 16, 8 and 9 is, in your Bibles, is there just like a bracket or a footnote or something that's like, this is like the big, it's called a textual variant. What does yours say? Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Okay, now what did we say earlier about what should be accepted and what should not? Okay, there's a big debate about this. Okay, I personally, I accept the, I accept Mark, the ending of Mark, as scripture, even though it's not part of the earliest manuscripts. However, we need to make sure that we don't build a theology out of one verse. And so here's a theology that some churches have built. So, go to verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. If they lay their hands on the sick, they will soon recover. Okay, so let's ask a question here. Do you have a snake candling church because of this one passage of scripture? Okay, let's ask the analogy of faith. Are there other passages in the Bible that talk about casting out demons? Yes. Are there other passages that talk about speaking in new tongues? Yes. Are there other passages that talk about laying hands on the sick? Yes. Okay. Are there any other passages about drinking poison and handling serpents? No. Okay, so you would say, that's interesting. That's not clear. But I have other passages of Scripture that are more clear, so maybe that was a contextual thing. I don't want to build a full theology. I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I'm not going to build a snake handling, drinking poison theology out of one passage that doesn't have a bunch of other scriptures coming in to speak to it. So you need to let scripture interpret scripture. So, so that's kind of an example of an obscure passage where you're like, I'm not sure what this means, but it, it can't mean this based upon other passages. All right. And then another, number two, the New Testament interprets, that's coming off the screen there. The New Testament interprets and explains the Old Testament. We have a New Testament for a purpose. Oftentimes, the, the writers of the New Testament will, will bring in an Old Testament passage and give commentary on it. So yes, you understand what the Old Testament meant, but oftentimes you have the fullness of the Scriptures and the fullness of Christ to look back upon the Old Testament. All right, number three. The Bible contains no contradictions because God is the single author, although there are many human authors. Okay, now, Matthew is an author. Moses is an author. Isaiah is an author. David's an author. Mark's an author. John's an author. They're the human authors. But who's the one singular author inspiring the scriptures working in them? It's God. And God's not going to lead them to contradict one another. Okay? Number four, the Bible is not a textbook written to explain scientific issues, biology, physics, etc. Okay, so, you, you know, you're not going to open the Bible and find out, you know, a calculus equation or... A deep explanation about rain, although it talks about rain. However, wherever the Bible claims about such matters is absolutely true and reliable. Okay, so the Bible is not a textbook or science book, but what it does talk about, it is true. So, for example, 
when it talks about a flood, it's not just an allegory. It, there literally was a flood. When it talks about Jonah being swallowed by a fish, I mean, it's not giving us a scientific thing about how a person can survive in the belly of a fish. Over, I mean, it's not giving us that information, but when it says Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, that literally happened. Okay, and then number five, this is really the hard part, or the, this is like the meat and potatoes. The Bible contains various styles and genres that must be understood in their original context. For example, poetry is interpreted differently than narrative passages, Paul's letters, and the book of Revelation are law passages. You, so, for example, like when I'm preaching judges, I'm preaching, for lack of a better term, a historical narrative. Sometimes those are hard to preach because what more do you do than just tell the story? Versus Paul, okay, you unpack the theology, and this verse means this, and so you, you approach it differently because they're different genres. And then Revelation is different because it's got all this imagery, and so you have to understand the genre, the style, in order to do that. Okay, last paragraph. We going to finish. All right, paragraph 10. And, all, and, and by the way, guys, the rest of them aren't this long. This, this is the foundation because it's the scriptures. All right, paragraph 10. The supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions, and ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations and whose judgment we are to rest is nothing but the Holy Scriptures delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. So what it's saying here is resolving theological controversies. Um, Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered them, You're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So if there is a theological controversy or a weird interpretation or some type of discussion that comes up in the life of a church? Do we just all line up and say, well, here's what Pastor Sean thinks, here's what Mickey thinks, here's what Glenn... I mean, do we line our elders up and say, well, here's what this group thinks, and, and it's whatever group wins out. No, what we're saying is, if there's any type of controversy, if there's any type of conflict, we, we ultimately go to the scriptures. Now, does that mean that we won't ever have knockdown, drag out fights over stuff? You hope not. Is that, I mean, debate is good. It's healthy. So, so I would say this. Under the leadership of the elders, the church should judge these opinions by the authority of Scripture. Deliberation is good and healthy, but we should be able to distinguish between dogma, doctrine, and preferences. We talk about that a lot. What are, the, what are the hills we're going to die on, the dogmas? What are the doctrines that we can agree to disagree with? And what are just preferences that there's no Bible verse, but this is what I like? Um, and so I've said over the years, our church will never, under my leadership, hopefully ever split over preferences. And hopefully we've had some people leave over the years over doctrine. But if it's going to blow up, it better be over a dogma. <laughs> where it's like a hill you die on, um, because those are the important things. So basically, we, we come to the end here, and man, we don't have a lot of time for questions, like four or five minutes. So that's chapter one, and it's got the most meat and potatoes and paragraphs, because it's all about the scriptures, and that's setting a foundation for everything else we're going to study, because the scriptures are the most important. Everything else we're going to study is based upon how you understand the scriptures, the necessity of scriptures, 
the authority of scriptures, the inerrancy of scriptures, the infallibility of scriptures, the, the sufficiency of scriptures, the need for the Bible to be translated, the, the God preserving the um, translations down through the, air, the, down through the years, your ability to understand scriptures, all of these things related to chapter 1. So any questions or comments or observations here in the last five minutes? I don't know how to word this, but something you're talking about with, and I wrote those five down, but you've mentioned various styles and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So us not being educated. Educated? What? You might sound like a dumb question. Make wise the simple. What is, <laughs> Well, I'm just saying about studying scripture. Yeah. Okay. How do you go about that? Yeah. So let me. So give, it's not just you thinking, yeah. oh, yeah, this is it. Okay. Let me give you two books. You may want. I'll write these. So, so um, there's a book called. Well, I'll just say it. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. That's that's the first book. The second book is an expansion on that, how to read each Bible, each book of the Bible for all it's worth. Okay? Gordon Fee is the author. What he does, and this is like in a hermeneutics or Bible interpretation class, um, they're small books. It, it goes through, Jeff, every major genre or style, and it gives you some clues or some helps to how to understand how to interpret each specific genre. So it'll say, okay, like law passages. Here's how you kind of need to understand how to read and, and understand law passages. Here's how you need to understand Old Testament Hebrew. Here's how you need to understand the Psalms, poetry. Here's how you need to understand you know, apocalyptic literature like Revelation or Daniel. So the best thing to do, guys, when it comes to genres and styles, you really need some helps on that. Um, and this is what we learned in seminary, but for the layperson, that's probably one of the best books, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. That's the big picture. The other one is How to Read Each Book for All It's Worth. I think it goes through each book, and it gives you kind of a breakdown of how to understand how to interpret it. And so, like, every time I do sermon prep or any time I sit down to study a book, one of the preliminary things I'll do is I'll refresh myself, just because I've been trained and been doing it for over 25 years, what I just need to get refreshed on how to understand the, the genre or the style that we're dealing with. Revelation's a whole lot different than Galatians. And a psalm, like for example, one of the things about a psalm, you'll notice that a psalm, there's two lines. A psalm contains two lines and they're symmetrical. They basically say the same thing, but in two different colorful, poetic ways. So it's repetition for purpose, but it's, so those are symmetric, it's called symmetry. Line one and line two, and sometimes line three, they say the same thing, but in a different poetic way. You need to understand that when you read a psalm. Um, and Paul's, he, he breaks things down in paragraphs, and somehow the paragraphs have to relate, and you have to look for the main verbs, because you know verbs in Greek, when you're studying Paul, are the important. And so there's just different things like that. I was just going to say, I don't want to be studying the Bible like it's kind of like because you asked me like you asked me a few weeks ago about that book and I think that yeah, was the book I, was, and, I think that was the book I was going to tell you about yeah yeah so yeah. because it's kind of like practicing something wrong and getting wild yeah I mean you know so I teach biblical interpretation at CCU and there's another big book called Grasping God's Words and they take you on what's it's like a big thick textbook it's pretty good too 
it takes you through a process of doing exercises where you have to actually like at the end of each chapter, you have to do an exercise, like almost like a math problem to help you learn the tools so that by the end of doing these by rote, by repetition, you're learning how to do it. And so that's more of an exercise book. This is more just read for your information. So, any other questions, guys? Probably better go. Somebody got to pick up your kids. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word that we can understand it. Lord, thank you for those that have translated it into our, our language. Thank you for those teachers we've had in our lives that have helped us understand it. And Lord, thank you that um, your word does make wise and simple and that, um, Lord, even a child can understand what it means to be saved and come to a knowledge of your truth. And so, Lord, just thank you for your word. Help us to always hold fast to the power and authority of your scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name.